Abe here, and I wanted to let you know that if you're able, you can upgrade your small beans skill over at patreon.com slash small beans. Here's why you should do that. If you pledge five measly beans a month, you get access to about half our podcasts that you don't get if you're just listening to the free feed. Shows include Star Trek The Next Futurama, Spielboys, Like Razor Blade Pie, and bonus episodes of I'll Show You Mine If You Show Me Yours. Not to mention bonus content, including info and updates on the movie we're making, Papa Bear. Hey, where's all the reasons to not subscribe to Patreon? I can't find them. Anyway, back to the show. What was I saying? <laughs> I don't know. What was I Wait, saying? Just, uh... <laughs> we never have intros. Like some people write their intros, and it's fascinating to me that you and I write down these podcasts. Like we like we're like, let's do a really good job with this. Let's write out arguments and stuff. Right. But when it comes to intros, it's like I don't know. Just whip out your dick and do something with it. <laughs> like whatever you need, man. Just go for it. Mr. Saltburn, bum, bum, bum. Wow. Kill my family. Dun, 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 dun. It's just that, like the talented Mr. Ripley. Bum, 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 bum. I don't. I actually don't have any more than that. <laughs> that's. I we spent a, thirty t- seconds thinking of an intro, and that's what you yeah. came up with. Yeah, wow. I didn't. I didn't care. Wow. That was the problem. Yeah. Is yeah. that my heart wasn't in it? Yeah. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, I, it shows that I would be a terrible. Uh, uh, Oliver Quick or talented Mr. Ripley. I'm not very you talented. Mean untalented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So here we are. Mm. Hopefully that gave you a chuckle at my expense. Ho- hopefully. <laughs> uh, this is Director Piece Theater. Yeah, We've it is. Been on a hiatus for a bit, but hey, guess what? We're back and we're doing movies. We're talking about uh, the directors of movies uh, and what it. they do. It was too mm-hmm. long of a hiatus. I just missed yeah. your face verbally. Yeah. Mr. Uh, Mr. He, Sound he said taste. my name. I'm Abe. That's Adam over there. Mm-hmm. And he brought us a theory today sure about did. the movie Saltburn, yeah, uh, which came out last year, like this year. Yeah, yeah. About uh, it's a 2023 movie, so last 23, year. 23. Yeah. It was uh, some people's pick for best movie of the year. I kept hearing, uh, and like I became the exact age I am uh, immediately by rolling my eyes when I heard that. It's <laughs> like get the hell out of here. Yeah, you're getting old man syndrome. I am. This movie immediately invoked old man syndrome. Although what's hilarious about it to me is uh it's it's around it's from around my era. Like it takes place in like, you know, two thousand what, five? Yeah. They're speaking to the songs of your the, people. Uh, dude, all I wanted to do was talk about the soundtrack. I was like, Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I this is all college rock. I know all this. Uh but yeah, yeah, I heard Block Party, and I was like, that was me yeah. in college. MGMT made an appearance. I was like, oh my god, I remember that band. Yep, uh, yep. Yeah, the Killers record, the first Killers record, I remember that one. You know, hey, it was great. <laughs> yeah, uh, what a time What a time alive. to have sounds hit your ears. Uh, what a wonderful time. Hey, Abe, thank God for Creeps, right? Yeah, hey, I love Creeps. I thank love God. this. <laughs> as soon as I saw who everyone was, like the family and everything, yeah, like basically yeah, yeah, yeah. like twenty minutes in the movie, yeah, I was like, oh, I hope he fucks and kills everybody. 
<laughs> I hope that's what I'm going to get. And yeah. boy, did you get it. And, uh, they did not disappoint, dude. No, they didn't. Didn't disappoint. Really didn't. I could have really seen didn't. some more sultry, you know. It could have gotten sexier in it's your mind. It's pretty sexy. The movie's pretty <laughs> sexy. It, I agree with that. Uh I yeah, I also disagree with it. I I have a lot of feelings about the movie. I think everybody does uh, yeah. about 2020. Everyone's on a spectrum, burn. and this is right yeah. on for me. This is right where I'm at. <laughs> oh, this is like this is the Abe picture. Yeah, <laughs> this is how I want sex to happen. Um, Great. Did you see Poor Things? I haven't seen Poor Things. Okay, yet. you need to see that because I wanted I wanted to have that I want to have this exact conversation with you again when you've seen Poor Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause that's another one, man. <laughs> that's another it's, fucking movie. All right. Yeah, yeah. A lot of creeps in that movie. Anyway, thank yeah. God for creeps. As I was saying, yes. so many of our best movies are just slowly pulling the mask down on a creep these days. Yeah. Right? Like the, uh, the sensational, uh, film with Jim Carrey, the mask. <laughs> you like that? Jim? You know what I like is how you shoehorn the mask in every place. It doesn't belong. <laughs> Uh, I it's mean, my favorite. I, I wouldn't say it doesn't belong, but you know, keep doing. It. I don't want to stop <laughs> no, you. Your vibe. In fact, you are you are saying that right now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so many movies are about creeps. You know, movies like The Joker, or like movies like all the other movies, which are mostly Batman movies, as I understand it. Yeah. Everything is Joker, right? The Joker. Yeah. Is Everyone's the just mascot freaks in that universe. Film. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we love a freak. We love someone who's uh, very kind of sad and pitiful, but also yes. dangerous. Yes. Actually, so like the phenomenon of like the rise of creeps in uh, in movies is is interesting as a sociological uh, experiment because like you can see that a lot of our entertainment has slowly been sort of drifting toward exploring creeps. Like for instance. You know, everyone's griping about the true crime revolution, right? Um, But also most of prestige television has been slowly finding ways to make the person who was obviously the bad guy in a movie in like anywhere from the 60s to the 90s into the protagonist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's just become the move now. There's like, a, put, there's a, we have a big sympathy for the devil thing because I think 100%. it comes from like contrarian Hollywood where it's like, you know, it's not all Hollywood. It's not like Disney, but it's right. you know a lot of uh, alternative cinema and you know independent cinema is like I don't want to do the traditional you know four quadrant story. You know, so they're gonna think of what's the hardest. How's the, what's the hardest I can go? And the answer to that is like kind of an antihero or a straight up villain that's right. repurposed. And it's an interesting problem, like because at a certain point, if you've left four quadrant movies as hard as we have. Mm-hmm. Those become the anti movie in a way. <laughs> yeah, like, you, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I really think you'll see in like 10, 15 years, depending on how culture survives, like, you'll see people pivoting back to that because it'll become interesting again, right? Like, you know, these are yin and yang things in some ways. But yeah. like, making a movie about a creep presents a really interesting dilemma for a director because, on the one hand, you must make us empathize with the creep to have him be a pro- or her be a protagonist, right? So, like, yeah. getting us to empathize is a huge piece of the exercise for a director. But you also have this this opposing mandate, because of the premise, of walking us down the road toward, uh, you know, grave-humping our good intentions. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, so, yeah, like, yeah. you got to find a way for us to be repulsed, but also intrigued by the creep. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not a brand new genre at all, but there's been a lot of very notable entries in it that I'll just kind of list so that we understand exactly what kind of movie we're talking about. So like the most obvious of them is a talented Mr. Ripley, which we'll be referring to a bunch, but there's been movies like Joker, Nightcrawler, Gone oh, yeah. Girl, um, A Simple Favor, um, American Psycho is a move toward this. Obviously Taxi Driver is sort of a great granddaddy of this genre and Misery, Oh yeah, is, misery. That movie's underrated. That's a great fucking movie. It's fantastic. Rob yeah. Reiner killing it, man. Yeah, yeah. Rob Reiner made that. Yeah, yeah. I know. And he had he had like a series of like bangers in a row. That like, was after When Harry Met Sally. Then he made yeah. Misery. He had like a four string movie mm-hmm. that like uh, that just like oh wow those are all home runs. immediate classics. What yeah. the fuck? Yeah, I mean, we could. Do, I we have talked about him on this podcast, as I recall. Yeah, we've also talked like we've talked about it on the Stephen King podcast. A yeah, ton. makes yeah. sense. Yeah, because of Stand by Me, right? Which is a great film and so, Misery. Yeah, yeah, Misery, and then yeah. Anyway, uh, a few good men. We could go on and on. The point is, <laughs> Saltburn is the most most recent in this spectrum of uh, creep movies, and it's by Emerald Fennell who is now sort of infamous for the movie Promising Young Woman, which she won an, uh, an, an Oscar for as a writer for a right. screenplay. Yeah. Um, Promising Young Woman remains a divisive film. I loved it, um, and I know a lot of people loved it, but last night I was literally over hanging out with a bunch of younger women watching a different film, American Fiction, and they all hated Promising Young Woman and had very complex arguments about it. So something about Emerald Fennell's filmography is definitely pushing people toward the edge of what they find comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. That That's who she is. That's her sensibility, which I think is really cool. Um, the creep of this film, Saltburn, is uh, Oliver Quick, as Abe mentioned, and he's played incredibly by Barry Keegan, who's quickly <clears throat> becoming one yeah. of my favorite actors. Yeah, he was in the Banshees of Insurance. Yes, as, yes he like, was. one of the best supporting roles. Where yes. he's just like, oh, you don't love me? All right, well, fuck. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Yeah, dude. Just a sad man. Just a sad, yeah. sad character. He's awesome. He is not 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 accidentally, by the way, going to play the Joker in uh, the newest Batman I mean, franchise. Saltburn is proof that he has both of the the combination yeah. of like, oh, that's just a that's just a dude who's just like kind of a harmless dude. He just mm-hmm. seems like a small guy who's yeah. not gonna harm anyone. Seems and then innocuous. also like he just turns on a switch and you're like, that motherfucker is a school shooter, man. <laughs> like that's like that's there was a little much. while where Steve Buscemi was this type of person. Mm-hmm. You know, before he became, I think, before his limitations started to become more obvious to us. Yeah. Like he was he could sort of fit anywhere and, you know, like uh often played these kind of creeps. Um Barry Keegan rules. I love him. I think he's a great actor. Um, so he presents a lot of material to work with, but today's episode is fundamentally asking the question, how do our newest and brightest filmmakers do the, like present the creep to us in a way that is compelling, um, that communicates both the intimacy that we need to care for this character, but also show us that he is indeed a full fledged creep. Uh, this dual purpose we will be calling for the purpose of this episode, pulling a Ripley. Mm-hmm, How do you mm-hmm. pull a Ripley? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 So Abe, as always, stop me anytime. Uh, if there are any observations you want to add in here, cause you I got just, it, man. Yeah. yeah Let's yeah. go. Yeah, bro. So, um, the question, how do we pose, how do we create emotional intimacy with a character we're supposed to feel repulsed by? So, like, I want to start with, like, the most obvious thing. 
um, because it's the thing that we often overlook, right? And that is casting is always the the is 95% of the work when you're casting a creep, right? Like if you don't get the right actor, um, you don't have it. And it's not possible no matter what you do from a filmmaking point of view. You know, there's nothing that substitutes for that. Um, part of the strange chemistry or, or alchemy of this is kind of understanding the given value that a person has as an actor and knowing how to how to channel that correctly. Right. Right. And this is like an uncomfortable thing, but it's 100% what casting is about. Like when you're auditioning actors, you get a distinct vibe from them that may not even be who they are necessarily, but it's how they, it's what they communicate, you know, in your primal lizard brain. And casting a creep means, you know, seeing the potential for this sort of latent, you know, sometimes violent, often, you know, manipulative sort of, you know, Iago-ish quality that, that yeah. exists in all these kinds of people. And it's like a bummer thing to be an actor who's great at that, except for the fact that you'll work forever. That's like yeah, the only consolation. Need, it's like, it's you mentioned Iago, it's known as one of the greatest roles of all time mm-hmm. for a very specific reason. It's right. very, very complex, and it's fascinating, and it's, you know, like, compelling in a way that we're like, oh, it's blending evil and want and desire and greed and all, like, or envy, and it's all these things, uh, you know, and it's different from, like, a Superman who's just like, I'm good. I'm, exactly. I'm very good. <laughs> not everybody can play Superman because not everybody can play a creep. And, like, you'll find that if you look really carefully at min- most actors' filmography, of course there are exceptions, but most actors fit kind of neatly into certain genres and story types because the way they are uh, matches this kind of feeling that the story so encapsulates. Much so much of acting is, hey, what kind of type do you look like? You yes, know? It's, and it's, directing too. There's no way around it. You know, yeah. we, we say that we're like, oh, we want to break types and stuff like that. But when you're a director or a showrunner of a TV show or something, and you're looking at people, you're like, look, I just want it to be clear first. You know, I'm not to this place where I can get elegant. And sometimes the character is not something that you're like, I can't spend time getting the audience to the complexity of like how I wish I would show it. So yeah, I'm going to just show this guy as a piece of shit and he looks like a piece of shit. There's no right. you know, way around You need this. that shorthand. Otherwise, uh, here's 20 minutes of film that needs to be cut. Right, exactly. Right? Like every, we're all relying on stereotypes and prejudices uh, right. to make sense of the world. Uh, it's a dark thing that we're often confronting now culturally, and that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. But also, it's still necessary for storytelling. Um, what is it that makes someone have a vibe? Um, it, it, like the alchemy of that boils down to, in my opinion, like the way their face hits you. Yeah. Um, a little bit of like how how. What is their? What are their manners and personality? And then uh-huh. a third quality that's not as easy to define, which I would say is like, what is the narrative that surrounds them? Some of that is like, you know, it, are there stories that shape how we feel about them? And some of it is just sort of like, uh, what is the collective reaction to this person? It's like a what have they thing. done in the past, and how is that a zeitgeist right. building? And you know, sometimes those things tend to sort of converge. Like for instance, Russell Crowe. Uh, the role that really he broke out in was Bud White in LA Confidential. Example, yeah. yeah, and like 
it was like, man, he was born to play that role. And then we sort of like, maybe he's actually a hero. Maybe he's Gladiator, in fact. And mm-hmm. then as the years have gone on, it's like, no, Bud White actually was a perfect role for him. Because, yeah, because he's kind of a heavy. He's yes. a bruiser, you know? Yes. Um, and, he, and he's and also he's, a good actor. He's done yes. some good stuff. Um, yes. He's got a very aggressive face, I've always thought. And his he's got a little bit of in your face. needs to prove it. He's got something to prove. Um, that's yeah. just like in his energy. And Bud White has more of that than, you know, Maximus does. Uh, right. Yeah. So I'm not saying he was bad as Maximus. I'm just saying like a lot of getting a great performance is also getting the vibe of this person and how do they fit. So that brings us to Barry Keegan. So Barry Keegan, I think has been like Hollywood has a great dossier on him because he keeps getting put in these roles and he's incredible in them. Right. Right. Uh, He's choosing really good roles. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it's that he's choosing them. Um, or, or maybe it's that, you know, people, it's probably a confluence of things. Um, Banshees of Ishnerin, he, absolutely demolishes in that movie and rips your heart up uh, as like sort of he's so unaware in a way that you're like, how does he do that? And this role bizarrely is exactly the opposite of that. And yet they mm-hmm. feel like they're kindred spirits. Right. Yeah. Because his, he's the self-loathing. Right. You know, it's the yeah, internalized yeah, that's right. insecurity and, um, you know, kind of skittish behavior. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a prey animal type, you know. Right. I imagine him as a little rat running around. If you know he didn't have control, and one character has control, the other is you know just running around. <laughs> you know, he's not really in control of anything. Yeah, yeah. It, it's they're both. They, yeah, they share qualities, and yet they both they both they approach life in wildly different ways, and yet they feel like uh, they have a similar deficit in their spirit. Uh, <clears throat> right, that motivates them. So, like, these are things that I think are, you know, like, obvious observations. But another observation that, like, really dramatically changes what you can do about him as an actor is he's really short. He's super short, right? And that is a thing that either has to be eliminated by the director or heightened, you know, to use the pun, by the director. And Emerald Fennell loves to point out how short he is in this film. She uses it to dramatic effect all the time. Um the first thing she does with it, and it's really important, is that she will use his height to show us how impotent he is, particularly at the top of the film, right? Like, right. Uh, I don't know what his actual height is. I'm going to guess it's like 5'5 five, five or something. Um, some You could Google that if you want. I don't know how tall he is. But it is an intentional move to have literally every single other person in this movie towering over him in every scene. Right. Think about yeah. every Tom Cruise scene in any movie. Right. Tom Cruise is also famously short. And there are so many times where the director has found ways to mitigate that by him being on an Apple box or by the characters are sitting when they do this or by he's closer to camera. So he looks bigger. Right. Just stuff that like makes you not think about Tom Cruise's height. Right. So mm-hmm. then when a director refuses to do any of that, what they're doing is reinforcing your stereotypes about short people which is that they are weaker, right? right? That's the first thing. But there's another thing that it does, which is it gives us the opportunity from a camera point of view to look down at him. So camera often looks down at him the way you might to a child. Yeah, right. Or like a baby. Yes. Because when you look up at the same thing happens, that's where we get glory shots. Where it's like... Power shots. The hero is, you know, in his element or something like that. Like, 
looking up at someone that's power because that's how we imagine our parents. It's that's right. as simple as that relationship. It's very lizard brain because it's one of the first power relationships you encounter is, you mm-hmm. know, your relationship to your parents. They tower over you. You look up at them. Right. And yeah. so conversely, when you look down at someone, it evokes the same emotional reaction that you have to children, which is pitying or caring for or thinking of them as cute. Definitely de-emphasizing the power relationship. Right. Yeah. And so doing that is actually a way to make us care about him and get into his point of view because it removes the threat. Right? Yeah, it, and it, it reduces installs his kind threat. of sympathy for yes. all these assholes surrounding him. Yes. Because he's constantly overmatched, we take his side. Right? Like it's it's just simple lizard brain math. And that's the director using the actor's height to her advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Now, another observation, and it, it may seem really simple, but it's actually somewhat complex in this film, is um, the best way to create intimacy with any character is to be close to them, right? And right. that's that goes back to, like, you know, if you thought about what is the actual spatial relationship between you and another person who is your lover or family member, it would be something like a medium close-up to a close-up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you, if you were shooting that relationship with a camera, that's what it would be. Which is why you use those shots to create intimacy between characters in a scene. Because it's imitating the emotional impact of a lover. Right? Right. Yeah. So, and so how many times do we get scenes where they're Felix and uh, who's his, you know, who's in love with? Far, uh, yeah, Felix. Felix and yep. Oliver are, like, it's basically a two-shot close-up, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that. You're, right. You're, you're right on, on that. So, like... Most creep movies, you don't give close-ups to the creep because that makes us intimate with them, right? Now, there are movies where they're, what they do is they intentionally get you close in a way that's unnerving, like, say, Silence of the Lambs, right? Like the most famous scene in Silence of the Lambs when uh, Hannibal Lecter is talking to Clarice about, you know, why are you, uh, what happened in the ranch, Clarice, right? That, that whole scene. Right. Um, the best thing about it is how close we get to Hannibal Lecter in it. You know, like you probably all remember the shot where it's like, oh, my God, he's staring into my soul. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's an example of using intimacy to create discomfort. This movie isn't really doing that. This movie is generally getting as close as we can get to Oliver, particularly early in the film, because it makes us feel how he feels about Felix. Right. right. That's that. Yeah. It, it has the impact of we want for him what he wants for Felix. Right. Yeah. And, you know, no, that's unusual that's for a creep. Um, another cool thing is sometimes we'll only get pieces of of Oliver. Like, we don't even get the full face, right? Like, he won't even be mm-hmm. shot in, like, a straight-up close-up or a medium close. It'll be, like, an extreme close where we don't see all of his chin, right? Or we don't see, like, we'll see, like, a slice of his nose or something, right? And mm-hmm. um, they do it, especially when Felix is around, we don't get the full face, because it simulates the experience of looking at somebody in bed, right? Like right, if you're which if you're an in, intimate Gaspar yeah. Noe kind of style, right? Yeah, I don't know that Gaspar Noe is my favorite, but you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he does that, doesn't he? He does that, boy. Does yeah. he, we should talk about him sometime on this podcast? <laughs> uh, not today, but but my God, um, yeah. Like if you're imagine you're in bed with your lover, take a minute, friends, and do that. Um, and then you sort of turn over in bed and look at your lover. The way they look to you is you see a slice of their face because they're yeah, laying all against... chin, baby. Yeah. 
That's how I like That's it. Right. All chin. That's right. Eyes buried, chin glistening in the sunlight. Yeah, you mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that sort of slice of face evokes in a you know unconscious way that impact. And it's how almost every serious conversation between Felix and Oliver is presented to us, you know, after, uh, particularly like when they start to get close to each other, right? Right. Um, so that's a really smart way to make us feel their intimacy without agreeing that it's happening, right? Like Emerald Fresnel never really tells us this is definitely happening. They like each other, right? Like, do you think Felix actually cares about Oliver in a romantic way at all? No, no. Um, and you get the sense from just their behavior in the shots that you're talking about mm-hmm. that he, that Oliver's cloying, you know? Yes. Felix is, there's an orbiting that's happening. Felix is never making eye contact. He's just like enjoying hanging out with the buds. But like Oliver is like multiple times extremely close, trying to flirt, um, trying to be so in his face that he's like, don't deny me. And that is, I think, part of the sympathy building and also, you know, just shows again that power struggle in that way. Uh hundred percent. I I didn't know. I don't know that the movie ever gives us a clear statement on how Oliver feels about Felix, because even oh. at the end when he says I hated him, uh, I don't know that I completely agree with him. You know what I mean? Like I like yeah, I'm he like, could be lying because he lies. I mean, or that's he the whole might thing. not be able to face how he really felt about Felix. But I think there's a fair enough like uh objective actions that when you yeah, he's he's definitely fucked up. He needs help. Yeah. But uh like masturbating on his grave, slurping up. No, no, his you keep saying water. masturbating. He doesn't masturbate. He fucks the grave. Abe. He fucks the grave. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh so there's a lot of so it's definitely a sexually uh you know, charged kind of uh relationship for him. There's right. no doubt. And in like that, to in be clear, opinion. on the scheme front, humping a grave doesn't advance your plans to take over the estate. <laughs> like there's no It does if you can get away with it, man. <laughs> Put that right at the midpoint. That's how you get the people to give you That's, their yeah, houses. Yeah. Um you're right, I haven't really done enough scheming here. So I'll no, write that into you're my clearly not plan. a schemer. Clearly not you humped enough graves. <laughs> no dude. grave humping. Yeah. No? Those, those are Ricky numbers. Literally. <laughs> Thank you, Abe. Uh, okay, so another interesting aspect of how we shoot uh, Oliver to create intimacy is when we leave him in the frame by himself, right? So, like, this is a simple thing directors do. Yeah. They create relationships between characters by them sharing the frame. Um, it happens a lot in, like, over the shoulders, right, where sort of you emphasize or de-emphasize the relationship between characters by including them or omitting them from the frame. So in this movie, and again, all these rules are like, she does it sometimes, she doesn't do it all the time, right? Like, so there's, there's, it's not like a universal rule, but I noticed that at key moments, she would often take away uh, the reverse over the shoulder and have Oliver be alone in the frame, even though the most natural thing would be to match the over the shoulder from the previous frame with Felix or Farley or Venetia or whoever, right? Um, so like, and so what I mean by that is like, if you were doing sort of functional journeyman directing, you would make the shots match because it would eliminate the feeling of them being imbalanced in some way. 
um, or it, creating a kind of confusion or geography bump in some way or a distance bump in some way. Because, you know, when things match, people are like, ah, that feels good, right? So creating a mismatch risks that possibility of creating a bump, and Emerald is doing it because she's trying to emphasize the feeling of unbalancedness that comes from Oliver's shot not matching, right? Making right. him feel alone, and then we feel bad for him. You know? Yeah, and there's a lot of shots where isolation is like the whole bit. You know, how many times does he have this kind of gaze right. where he kind of just is looking at Felix interacting with the world, not knowing that Oliver's watching, and it's almost like center punched and dolling in yep. kind of stuff. You That's know, right. there's a lot of like focus on look at this guy who like is doing this creepy thing like don't watch people like this you yeah know? no kidding so like the if you want to think of one shot that's like that explains this the best or shows this the best i think it's when oliver shows up to saltburn the first time and meets the the insane uh david lynch-esque butler, butler duncan yeah. for the first time right so like duncan opens the door this you know ridiculous manner and like clearly they're not going to get along that seems obvious from minute one right the shot that we get of oliver is actually not correct spatially like it's framed weird so when it jumps yeah he's back, got too much headroom he's got too much headroom and he's too far away from camera for it to make sense as a cut between the two shots but it's not so far away that you're like that's wrong it's just far enough away that you're like huh that feels weird Right. Yeah. And like you're instantly in his emotional headspace as a reaction to Duncan. Overwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. Overwhelmed and also feel, ooh, I don't feel good. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Because she gives an unnatural matching reverse. Right. So yeah, I also love just in the, um, the, there's a, like, just as a bookend, when he leaves Saltburn, I love yeah. the touch that uh, the film does where that's on a telephoto lens yes, where it was. it's almost like, mundane like you're leaving is mundane there's some pomp and circumstance to your arrival but you know like we're just going to show it as if it was a documentary yeah, you're just walking away and yep. i love that the help is all supposed to be out there to be like see you off but they do not even though we have had no interaction with like the footman or any of that while he's been there that whole summer there's like one guy who goes like bye bye motherfucker you know <laughs> like he waves like it's clear that none of uh they all hate the him. workers like him yeah you know nobody they all likes hate him. him right yeah nobody and i think that that's wonderful because he's the kind of guy who's been representing for the first third of the movie for us He's like the working class That's guy. That's right. And they should, he should be their champion. He right. should be like someone that they're like, oh, this guy kind of gets it, you know? And he would, but it's, he doesn't chat him up or do any of the shit that you would do because he's got a different agenda. That's all it comes down to. Yep. 100%. Now, one of the things that makes uh, Fennell such a great director, and by the way, I do think she's a great director. I like her as a director even better than as a writer. You know, like mm -hmm. I think, I think she has a lot of talent. Uh, visually, yeah. Yeah. and this is visually compelling. This is a visually compelling sure. film, one hundred percent. She can use exactly the same tools that we just discussed to create intimacy against us, right? So she can create, she can use them for the exact opposite purpose, and it creates a kind of visual language that, again, is off-putting, um, and where you it undercuts the certainty that you feel, a thing that directors don't often do. Like a lot of times directors build a system in place and then they sort of build to one specific feeling. She puts a system in place and then uses the system for the exact opposite experience later in the film. It's pretty wild. Right. You don't see yeah. a lot of that. 
Um, yeah, I love that. So one thing she does that really stood out when I watched this the second time is that as she's doing all this height reinforcement stuff, every time Oliver does something devious, he is taller than the person that he's doing it to. Yeah, it comes out of nowhere. And it, and it's you don't costume. think about it because it's blocking usually, but not always. Like for instance, the first time he runs into all to Felix and the Felix's tire is flat, which spoilers, we find out at the end of the movie he did. Oliver did right. that. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Felix yeah. is sitting on the ground with a flat tire and Oliver rolls up to him. Right? And it's one yep. of those like, yeah, of course he's sitting on the ground. It just makes him seem like a chilled out dude. But if he was standing, suddenly he wouldn't be in distress. Right, but now that we know what we know, it's almost like he's threatening Felix. Exactly, that's exactly what's happening. Right. So another great example when Oliver blackmails Farley and then starts, you know, sort of kicks their Cold War into actual conflict. He literally straddles him, and mm-hmm. like jerks him off while he threatens him. Uh, a thing that, if I was to guess who would win that fight before that scene, I would have said, "Oh, Farley." Right. Uh, yeah, he's but, like taller and yeah, seems know. bigger, you know. Like, uh, but Oliver clearly asserts himself as the more dominant character there, and it's like, yeah. wow, that was pretty uh, interesting. And my favorite example, and this is when it really started to stand out to me, what she was doing, is when, when so there's a there's like three or four pretty pretty famous scenes from this. One of them is that the sister of Felix, her name is Venetia, she is. Uh, she has her own sort of emotional problems. One of them is that she's sexually promiscuous, and she's clearly sort of hanging out in the courtyard to be seduced. Um, and- oh, interesting. I didn't interpret it that. I thought that she was um, uh, sexually stilted. I thought, I thought that, Ro- that Rosamund Pike literally said she was promiscuous, which like she oh, literally planted I thought she that was idea. Saying that she's like got she's like blocked. Like she's like all she needs is like one person. Oh, maybe to, I misunderstood. Like, Okay, but I could be misunderstanding too. Okay, because I thought bad. that 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 pinged is weird to me because I was like, that's a strange problem to have. But like, I don't know. I um, thought she was saying that she like had emotional problems and was therefore either way. Yeah. Anyway, you know, so it's planted yeah. by the mom. You know, like uh, that. There's gonna be there's gonna be some sexing between these two, right? Right. So the way that Oliver does it, and it's kind of the first time you see his true, like his actual dark side, is. We're on kind of like a medium close of her in the chair, and he comes in above her, almost like a raptor in the Jurassic Park scene. Right. Again, right? we get the orbit. You know, yes, like he, he orbits is, her. She is, she is powerless to yes. his, like his, he controls the space. Yes. So he literally towers over her, straddles her, right? And then later, when she talks her into committing suicide, same angles. Same angle. He's yeah. above her again, almost similar shot size, right? <clears throat> so, like, that's he, their actual dynamic. He kills these scenes. These oh, are the best. Yeah. These, the four scenes you just pointed out, those are the four best scenes in the movie. 100%. In my yeah. Because you see, because Oliver's uh, acting differently and it totally fits. You're mm-hmm. like, I believe this. And it's also, you're like, oh my, like, he is powerful. Like, you can see how these people who usually are domineering and run every conversation would be taken aback by Oliver's suggestions and words and demands to the point that you're just like, if anyone were to say this shit to me in real life, I would be like, yeah, uh, keep going. Yeah. Uh, This is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I'm loving it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, The next thing that she does is she starts to give us the size we don't want. 
uh, of some of these intimate moments to make us uncomfortable with him. Like that starts around the midpoint of the movie. We start getting the size we don't want. Right. Mm-hmm. So the first big one is uh, when he drinks Felix's bath water. <laughs> We're yeah. like really tight on him doing that by the drain. Mm-hmm. And it's like, bro, right. no, I don't want to watch this. And it goes on. And he on. just jerked off in that bath water yeah. too. Yeah. And it not, just goes not on. Not Oliver. He just found Felix masturbating. He's Correct. like, I'm going to drink that bath I'm water. I'm going to drink that bath water. Um, and it's, we, it goes on a bit. Then mm-hmm. after he eats out Venetia when she's on her period. Uh, he and he calls it vampiring. <laughs> so so will yeah, I we. love that line. He's like, "Good yeah. thing because I'm a vampire." I'm a vampire. <laughs> and when she's like, "I'm on my period, so don't do this." Yeah, and he's, he's like, like "No," nah, and then I'm she's do it. like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> so the shot we get is again, it's in the water, and it's an extreme close up of his mouth, all with chin blood baby. in the, right, blood in his mouth. It's the kind of shot that has been hand like up to this point in cinema history. You know, for like the Lolita type character, like that's who you get that shot of, right? Right. Yeah. And we just got it for him from a for a pretty heinous act, right? And it's yeah. Like, I mean, he's whoa. bleeding. Like he he looks like a vampire. Yes, he he's does. Like, the right. wa- the blood is trickling into the water. It's yes. pretty dense, and he is just he smiles, and, and it's you're real like, ah. tight, real tight on it. I, I I love that. Me too. Conversely, she also gives us wides that we don't want, right? So there's to times- make him. Kind of pathetic, uh, pathetic, or to yeah, to make us have to live with the entirety of what's going on, <laughs> yeah. right? So like the best one, and we all know what it is. It's the humping the grave, right? Have you seen uh, MacGruber? Uh, no, I know, I know. It's a huge. There's one. So MacGruber, by the way, underrated. Uh, yes, it's good. Underrated I've heard that. comedy. Uh, it's it's unhinged, and there's a few jokes that are great. And one of the jokes is he. It's constantly humping stuff, and he <laughs> usually yells at one point, I'm going to shoot, uh, which is just hilarious. But the humping the grave in Saltburn is like, feels, inner, like in terms of energy, yeah. MacGruber humping uh, Maya Rudolph's grave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank it's you. So good. It's just this wide shot where you're like, where he's going like, hey, hey. <laughs> And Will Forte's just killing it, and just like Will Forte. Well, all you've uh, done is made made another thing for me to do today, uh, which is yeah. see that the humping. Very so like, also kills it in the hands of most directors. This is how that scene would go. You'd get the wide of him laying down on the on the grave. You'd see him starting to slide down the pants, and you would cut in to and maybe show a like medium, some clarity, a medium close, so you get the emotion like, of know. what he's doing. Right? You know, this little freak exactly. is going to do some <laughs> exactly. crazy shit. You don't even need to see it, but she understands that. But if you don't see it, you're not as repulsed by it. You feel bad for him, even though he's psychotic. This right. The only way to be properly repulsed is to watch him do it. Right? And she's right. that's fucking true. Uh, I would say, it's a, maybe you and I don't agree about this next example. I would say the wide of him dancing is a thing that we... We love it, but also we don't want it. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's oh like, yeah, of course we don't want it because it means he succeeds and right. he can enjoy. Like he's scot free. You know, like he he did the thing and he's there's going to be no poetic justice for him. Um, right, and like the 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 exuberance of it, uh, and in some sense the exploitation of it is like a way of taking away the joy of it. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like she like kind yeah, of take, takes the fun away. You know? Right. I think it's a necessary maneuver, honestly. Me too. 
if you were to go with full success. You know, Me Talented too. Mr. Ripley has this bittersweet ending right. where I believe his name is Peter, the lover at the end after all the Ripley shit and the Gwyneth Paltrow shit has like kind of resolved and he's kind of gotten away and out of it. Uh, there's one loose end, but he's also in love with this other guy. He meets someone on uh, a boat who knows about his other life. Like they have two, basically two people on the boat have two different names and understandings of who he is. So he knows because he's just like a control freak and that's how he's been highly successful at murdering and taking people's identities. Uh, I have to kill one of these two people and the woman has her family with it. I can't pull that off. So I have to kill my own lover, something he doesn't want to do. Yeah. But he pays we get the, the feeling that he does it and it succeeds, right. you know, like, um, but if I'm cost remembering the ending in that movie correctly. Yeah. Um, and so there's this bittersweet kind of thing in Saltburn. There's no bittersweetness. It's just no, straight it just up. Happened. He yeah. bides his time. It's not like he, he gets like, slapped you know but is it's basically you know slapping on his wrists you know like he doesn't get any he ruins relationships and he doesn't get what he wants truly but in a way he kind of can't kind of is like i think he settles for it and he's like yeah this is good argue i mean well actually so you know what let's come back to this at the end of the podcast because i think it's worth discussing whether or not did he get what he wants is this a happy or a sad ending Right. You know what I mean? Because I like I think you can make a case for either one of them. Um, yeah, of in, course. In either case, showing him dancing nude through through this place he he stole uh, is uncomfortable and uh, and is a successful way of undermining our expectations. Um, we've talked about how she creates weird distance between him and other characters in the way she gives reverse shots. We've talked about that. That's sort mm-hmm. of an example of using shot size against us. Um, so here's some things she does that are just like, and I'm going to underline how creepy he is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is the most obvious one, I think, but also the one that a, a casual film watcher will never think about. Um, and also it takes really a lot of skill as a director to do effectively, which is Oliver is almost never lit. Almost never fully lit. You, you, he is constantly um, in low-key or half-key or barely lit scenarios. Um, in even in scenes where the person that is in the scene across from him has way more light on them, and he, she has to justify that with mm. like you know the the tapestries on the wall or like the drapes or whatever it is, right? Um, there are times where we don't even get eye light for Oliver. Yeah, right. Which usually people argue if you don't have it, something that cinematographers say is that you you don't you feel like that person doesn't have a soul. Yes. Um, eye light is not something that always happens in real life, but almost always happens in media. Yes. It's hard to, a lot of directors will do this for a moment in a movie or a scene in a movie and then really give you the shot that shows us that so we feel it. She's doing it as a sort of consistent approach to this character so that no single moment of him being not lit stands out as a choice, mm-hmm. but it's all a choice. Uh, that sort of undermine, undermines his, you know, yeah. likability. Um, and there's ways to do that. Like I've seen yeah. films, we've all seen films, uh, you know, where it's like the person is not lit, but they have a strong highlight. And that almost says to us, like, that looks like a predator, like a right. leopard in the jungle looking right. at me and I'm going to eat my face. Um, so like there's ways in which you can show it. Did you want, did she want to focus on the prey aspect of him? No. 
She wanted to uh, focus on the emptiness of him. Right, exactly. Um, so, like, even shots where he does have direct sunlight on him, like, for instance, we find out that one of the interview shots we've been going back and forth between, because, you know, there's kind of a monologue that occasionally ties sequences together. We find out it's actually at the bedside of Rosamund Pike, who's the mom of this family. Um, he's bragging to her. He's bragging yeah. to her as he's slowly letting her die. Um, that shot, there's a huge sun source in it, right? He's right by a window. Yeah, which gives flare everywhere. Yeah, it gives him this insane edge light, and yet the light never crosses over into his face. His face is still almost entirely unlit, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, it takes effort to... <laughs> takes yeah, it's very low con. That's right. something you see a lot on Instagram. It's almost like a lot of those filters are designed to create this kind of lighting, right? Um, which you know they they do really well because it like not only is it thematically involved, but it, it looks good. It looks like he's kind of too bright to see, but also obscured in darkness. That's hard. It's That's hard really to do that. Fucking hard. It takes time and energy and planning to do that. And more specifically, she actually puts lights into scenes as a source of meaning regularly, right? So, like, for Mm -hmm. instance, the first scene where we're meeting the people at Oxford, you know, um, they're sitting at kind of a Hogwarts-style table, right? A series of tables. And in the center of all these tables are lights, right? There's a bunch of lights. So, like, literally all the rest of the kids who fit into this world are lit in the face, Meanwhile, Barry can't find, not Barry, excuse me, Oliver can't find a place to sit. He's shrouded in darkness, right? Mm. It's a very simple thing, and it happens over and over and over in this movie. Um, Even places where the light should be hitting his face based on what's in the scene, it doesn't, Mm. right? Now, she does one thing that's like sort of a tangent off of that style, which is sometimes she'll give these like these big flashes of color that fully light up his face. And they're usually single saturated colors that feel like nightmarish or fantasy-ish, like red or green or something like that, right? Right, yeah. And you'll see him in these party montages. And for a little while, I was like, okay, so that's like sort of, you know, maybe his latent desire. And then she does this really cool thing where she ties it together with the glass panes surrounding Saltburn and the bathrooms. So yeah. you start to realize, and also, oh. when Felix dies, that's, yeah. The, yes. She's actually doing a kind of, she's using an archetypal motif there where she's using stained glass windows and crossing it with partying and sort of making a sacred. Which is prof- excellent. It's, it's awesome. It's a sacred excellent. profane inversion. Right. So like, because they're like neon colors. Right. You know? Right. So like a lot of movies do that, right? And but they'll do it in this way that's very like Romeo plus Juliet, where it's like, you get it. It's like stained glass, but it's but it's rad. You know what I mean? Right. Whereas Shh. this is just like uh and this is the world and the world looks like this. And if you wanna notice the similarity of these shots, that's on you, baby. Right. What she's doing is secretly reinforcing the the uh the sanctity slash holiness, we use that word in in you know, quotes of the world Oliver wants to belong to Saltburn mm-hmm. and the wealthy class that this place that want to be in this place are sacred. They are, you know, uh, they have transcended right. the way that, you know, uh, a religious character would in a stained glass window. And so every time Oliver is almost bonding with Felix or enjoying the sort of rapturous, uh, let's call it uh, communion 
with the people from this place, we get flashes of that color. Right. right? And so it's cool. It's, it's, it works because all of us have a built-in emotional uh, understanding of what stained glass windows means and what they mean. And so she's using that in very primal way to like underscore the meaning of uh, Oliver's actions. Right. Mm. Then she goes even further and makes the blood that he on his face uh, and some of the like other like the blood in, that uh, Venetia dies in right in the bathtub. She makes those the same color. <laughs> like they're this yeah. like bright, saturated red. Yeah. Right. It's pretty gnarly um, and and really cool work. Um, OK, so like I think this is the last major tactic we haven't totally talked about. So the, the last way she makes a person, she makes Oliver into a creep is a uh, pretty simple framing. And by what I what I mean by that is like look at his frames, okay? Most movies, you know, they teach you this in film school. They have a thing called the rule of thirds, right? The rule of thirds means people feel comfortable when you put a the thing that your eye is supposed to look at on one of the third lines dividing the frame, right? If you think of I would the frame, argue it's less rule of thirds and more of balanced frames. Yeah, that, that's kind of rule of fours and rule of five. A hundred percent. Rule of thirds is just a a. A simple, all, all, also right. kind of archaic way of talking about a balanced frame, right. right? Oliver almost never has a balanced frame, right? Yeah. Um, lots of times they'll frame him in such a way that he has massive headroom, you know, which mm-hmm. again reinforces he's short and also makes him feel like he is less than a person who gets a normal frame. Right. He's always placed in strange quadrants that are off-putting. Yes. Or aesthetically. Yes. You know? It dehumanizes him. Also, in almost every conversation that he's having with somebody, he is short-framed. And what short-framing right. means is, in most conversation pieces in movies, characters, when, they're, when you're shooting the shot of them looking at the other character they're talking to, they will mm-hmm. look at the side of frame that has the most space. They'll look across yep. that space to the other character, and then you cut to the reverse, and that character will look across at the, across at the other character in the area in the frame that has the most space short framing means they're looking at the shorter side of frame where there's less space and it gives us a general feeling of discomfort. Again, these rules were followed more religiously in the past than they are in 2024. I mean, it's like the handbook for French new wave cinema, Yes, you know, like Godard, like Pierre LeFou or like breathless, literally the, the things you just said are like how that the visual strategy of those films, because I think they were wanting to do like, I want to break convention. He is not in a world that makes sense to the rest of us. And that's exactly what this film is doing with, you know, uh, Barry Keegan. Right. And you'll see a lot of films use this tactic. So like, you, I don't think you could just like, see, he's short frame. That means he's a creep. It's just right. one of those things where it, it, the summary of all these parts gives you a distinct feeling. Yeah. yeah, there's an aggregate. Um, I don't think any one single thing would feel enough, but all of them together, it's a pretty effective strategy. That's and the last works, thing that baby. she does is she has him hump a grave. That's true. She has him and hump a grave. Pretty sweet. That's pretty, pretty sweet. That really made There's the film. There's one thing brave. I want to add to your theory, which yeah, yeah. is because I love your explanation of how to build a Ripley from the perspective of everything is character centered. Yes. Also, I would argue that a lot of effort goes into and with high dividends. Um, kind of moving the goalpost of what is, like, what what is a piece of shit? What is not necessarily a creep, that's interesting, but like, yeah, because you're because a lot of what you were talking about, especially earlier, was about sympathy building in the early act, in Act One for Oliver. Uh, we sh- we show the rich 
society as vapid and uh, annoying and judgmental. And selfish. And yeah. people who deserve to be taken down a peg. But of course, you know, like not that many pegs, you know, so it's just like the 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 world building and the sympathy for the devil. It's almost like you hide the devil a little bit and you show how everyone around them is more of a devil. That's how you build a, you know, uh, a Ripley, in my opinion. It's also. Yeah, that's an interesting the observation space around it, because I think this movie exists in a time where there's so much animosity toward wealthy people that mm-hmm. it can't be, uh, you couldn't make talented Mr. Ripley and have it be as effective. Right? It's interesting like, because this stuff is straight out of the playbook, at least like what I was just mentioning. Yeah, it is. Uh, succession, yes. Arrested Development, which yes. both did like black comedy and satire. This is a little bit black comedy, but it's more of like a thriller or like kind of a psychological horror, um, which plays it straight. Um, but they're all doing the same thing with their rich characters. Right, uh, yeah, they strip them of all humanity eventually uh, and make yeah, them into make pure them... monsters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm not saying, I, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that because uh, I agree with the gripes. You know, <laughs> I agree with our cultural gripes. So yeah, maybe, maybe they of, are this. I don't, I don't I'm know. I'm more of just examining it from a standpoint of like, you move the goalposts when you set, if you set the goalposts of like who's sympathetic, surrounding them with unsympathetic characters is a good way to build sympathy for that one character. You know what I mean? Yes, you're right. So it is effective as a tactic, which is all we're really talking right. about here. Uh, and yet I think part of the reason why people love Saltburn is that it is tapping into a certain uh, a certain sort of like, it's a revenge film in a way. Yeah. Right? Like, Ready or Not does the same thing. That's yeah. just a straight horror that well, plays pr- promising young kill woman. all the rich, eat the rich. You right. Know? Promising Young Women is also a revenge film. Yep. Uh, yep. I don't think this movie is trying to be a revenge film in the same way that Promising Young Woman is, a uh, young woman is, but like mm-hmm. it may by de- default be doing that. I don't know. It's a discussion point. Um, yeah, he's the Joker, baby. He's the Joker, baby. So uh, all I want to say in conclusion is that I really think that Emerald Fennell is somebody to watch. Like I think she's a great director. Um, I I love her films, visually in particular. I think she makes great visual choices from what i've read of her interviews she starts with visual ideas um and i think smart choice yeah that's interesting um and like you know also just want to thank her for bringing back all the great dance rock that existed (laughs) before vampire weekend cold war kids cold war kids baby you know (laughs) uh killers as i said somebody gifted me 2004's uh hot fuss before that album broke out abe I literally, nice. for like two months, I was listening to it. I was like, man, this is a good band. I hope people hear about them. And baby, and they, they did. Up. Baby, they did. Um, Hell yeah. I also think creep movies are one of those like markers that all, all of our auteurs tend to sort of visit at some point or the other. You yeah, know? a little bit. Uh, yeah. Especially the edgy guys. Well, but even like, <laughs> like even our twee filmmakers like Wes Anderson have their Rushmore's. True true you know what i mean true uh, it's uh it's about dysfunction and a lot of yes. great filmmakers want to dabble in the dysfunction of a character who is seeing the world in a different way that makes their films unique you know you have a strong perspective that is outside the norm that's a great lesson alone you know Absolutely. in terms of if you're crafting a story uh if you have that in your in your story like that's compelling to almost everyone 
hundred percent. Uh, and last, I just want to say R.I.P. to Anthony Minghella, uh, who was oh the director of Talented the director of Talented Miss Ripley, who who died young from what cancer. Else did he do? He he what else did, did he uh, do? English Patient and Cold English Mountain. English Patient. That's and Cold Mountain. He's a good director. Was. He was a good director, and hell yeah, he he was a subtle director in a lot of ways, and uh, it's just one of those things. Like man, he really had an interesting point of view that was nuanced. And you don't see that a lot in auteur type filmmakers. I like this story a lot because it makes a villain out of everyone, but it Me also too. gives you this feeling of yeah, um, like the cycle of abuse can be broken. It didn't have to be this way. Like there's a bittersweetness to the story. Um, well, I it's think funny you could kind good. you could kind of conceive of it as Game of Thrones too. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like bit. it's it, the same kind of idea. Well, I mean, effectively medieval history you could see as this, right? Like this is this fits in the continuum of people Killing usurping, kings and, yeah, yeah, taking usurping and taking over, uh, and making what was theirs into mine. Right. You yeah. know, like that's He's just William Wallace, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I guess William Wallace isn't a good William example because he baby. died. Uh, William Wallace famously. Got he killed. did famously die, uh, uh, you know, unlike his contemporaries know. who were still alive. None of them died. But so enter enter your own example of someone who didn't die, who yeah. never died. <laughs> Listen, and audience, you, you know the point that I'm you thinking know the of. Point I'm make trying it yourself, to make, man. <laughs> what am I, a podcaster? Am I supposed to spell out everything for you, fucking freaks? Uh, anyway, uh, that's all I got for you, Abe. I did it all, dude. That lovely, lovely Thank film. You. Yeah, lovely, uh, like basically schematic. You just gave us a visual schematic of like, you know, I feel like Emerald Fennell is like listening to this and being like, "You can't give away all my tricks." You gave away all my tricks. She's definitely not yeah. doing that because she's like, "You have not seen anything yet," and uh, you know, <laughs> pulls out a fucking tapestry of cruelty that we're mm-hmm. all going to enjoy for the right. Because <laughs> she's kind, yeah. she's kind of a mean filmmaker, and I love that. Right, I love the meanness. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's in, yeah. that's what she's into. Also, David David Fincher, kind of a mean filmmaker. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, they seem like kindred spirits. Wants to in a way. see your characters punished. Yeah, that's a key. Yeah, I think, and you will go really far to punish <laughs> any and everybody. Really, <laughs> suffering is a key to great filmmaking. Hey, man, that's right. I don't disagree. No, I'll be honest. Neither does history. I guess that's how 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 it rolls. I guess that's the end of the episode. I, yeah, I think we're already done. I think you've already cut all this. <laughs>